Hi, and welcome to the LEAP podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm Linda Akutagawa, your co-host. And I'm Yana, your co-host for the LEAP podcast. Welcome to season three. Our theme this season is centered on identity within a leadership context and how we as Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders navigate the complexities of our worlds as leaders through the lens of identity. Our hope for all of you who are listening to us is that these conversations spark new ideas and you're able to apply them in your own life. Okay, welcome everyone. Today's episode is about food and the search for home and identity. My name is Jan and Linda is here with us and we are joined by our guest, Kim Sune. Sune is a former food editor for Time Inc. and the author of two cookbooks, A Mouthful of Stars and Everyday Korean. Her best-selling memoir, Trail of Crumbs, Hunger, Love, and the Search for Home, was both a Barnes & Noble Discover pick and a Book Sense pick, and has been translated into Korean, Chinese, and Hebrew. Kim Sune was born in South Korea, raised in New Orleans, and then lived in France for 10 years. She has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Ladies Home Journal, People, Elle, Glamour. Her writing has appeared in Food and Wine, The Oxford American, Cooking Light, Garden and Gun, and Asian American Poetry and Writing. Sune has appeared several times as a guest judge on the Food Network's Iron Chef America. So for more food and travel, follow along on Sune's Instagram, Kim Sune. And for recipes, check out her website, kimsune.com. I've had the pleasure of attending Kim, Kim Sune's Floating Island Writers Workshop back in 2009 after reading her memoir, Trail of Crumbs. I was so starstruck at the time, and I still am. <laughs> and yet, during that workshop and the years following, Sine continued to creatively inspire me. So thank you so much for being here with us. So the first question we have for you is your first book, The Trail of Crumbs bestselling memoir. Critics have used words like haunting, poetic, vivid, and brave. And I wanted to ask you, what was it like for you to publish your memoir for the world to read? You know, it was thrilling in so many ways. I loved the process of writing the book. Like, I realized how much I love publishing, actually. And I don't know how I got so lucky, but I teamed up with an incredible agent, Joy Tutela of the David Black Literary Agency. We talked a little bit and I just sort of told her I really wanted to write a cookbook. And she used the P word, which was basically platform, and I had no platform. <laughs> so um, I was just starting out as a, as a food editor. And so we talked a little bit more about my story and I could see her leaning in and writing notes. And um, I had written maybe 20 pages of just something about being adopted and the search for identity. And she said, okay, go home. This is right before the holidays. Send me something and uh, we'll, we'll look at it. And I said, okay, I'll send it to you after the holidays. She said, nope, send it to me tomorrow. 
I said, okay. <laughs> so with that, you know, the whole process of nonfiction is that you, you write a proposal. And when you're writing fiction, obviously you write the whole book. I worked with her and she teamed me up with um, an amazing editor, Amy Einhorn, who actually was Min Jin Lee's uh, editor for her first book, Free Food for Millionaires. And she was such an amazing editor to work with. And I remember I was working full time um, as well. So I'd go into the office or I was traveling, but I had this having a a deadline gave me so much discipline. Um, So I remember thinking this propelled me, this thrill, you know, I'm, I'm a first time author, I'm going to write a book. And I remember I had nine months to turn it in. Usually you have a year, wow. but um, I had nine months and I remember turning it in and thinking I would feel relieved, but I actually felt bereft. I think mm-hmm. I just, I think I, I cried on and off for a full week mm-hmm. and I needed time to sort of digest what I had actually done. Yeah. You know, that my editor was happy. You know, I, I went through one more sort of manuscript with her. And then it went out in the world. And this mm-hmm. was a time, this was over 10 years ago. So there was no TikTok. There was no immediate, you know, the social media mm-hmm. um, reaction. So it was more traditional in that, you know, we were promoting it through newspapers and magazines, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I remember after turning in the manuscript, she said, okay, two things. One, get a thick skin because everyone's a critic, which is even now more so than ever. Yeah. Um, I don't know how thick, I don't think my fin could have been thick enough for what's going on today. Yeah. But, and then she also said, now you need to get blurbs from other established authors. And I thought, yeah. okay, I don't know anybody. <laughs> so what do you do? So I reached out a little bit and through luck or pursuing whatever, I, I actually, Jim Harrison you know, the late mm-hmm. author, he wrote an amazing blurb. And then Francis Mays, mm-hmm. of course, the incredible prolific writer mm-hmm. of Italy and travel and mm-hmm. food. Um, she wrote a beautiful blurb to my editor. But I remember, I think one of the words she did use was brave. And I just, that mm-hmm. word hit me and I thought, mm-hmm. oh my, what have I done? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know why it, it, it hit me in a way of this is real. And I have mm-hmm. to go out there now with this story. Yeah. yeah. So it was a little scary. I mean, the whole process mm-hmm. was wonderful, like I said, but just feeling, knowing that you put something out there about yourself, that was, you know, obviously very, very private and personal. Yeah. But I think what's interesting, and Jan, we might have talked about this in the workshop, is that when you are writing memoir, you're not writing a how-to manual or mm-hmm. your whole history. Mm-hmm. You're writing about one slice of life, right? Yeah. And so my themes were really hunger, love, and the search for hope. So whatever I wrote about in that, in the memoir, I try to always bring it back to that, you know, because there are tons of meals and stories and travel and people Mm -hmm. that I've met during this time period that I'm writing about, but they weren't pertinent to propelling the narrative forward. And you also have to think of yourself as a character almost. Mm -hmm. You have to separate that identity, you know, it's you, obviously, but you also, in order to be able to write scenes and dialogue, it was a fascinating process and I really enjoyed it. But then I also realized after, like, this is going out there in the world. And that was a little scary. So there's this hugely compelling piece, which starts right at the beginning of your memoir about being left in the marketplace and you waiting for your mom to come back. Can you share with us how it felt to capture that experience? I think that 
because I don't, I was about three years old. We don't know exactly when, you know, I don't know when I was born. I was left at a marketplace. And, and this is only through what I've been told by my adoptive family, as well as the police. Apparently I was left at a market or lost or abandoned. I spoke a very beautiful, more advanced Korean, they said, but I was so little and scrawny that they couldn't quite figure out if I was two and a half or three, you know, they didn't know exactly how old I was, but I kept telling the policemen who, I guess they had seen me for a few days and and maybe at that time it's a bustling market. It's very common, you know, kids are running around, Mm -hmm. but apparently for three days and nights, I kept telling them my mother's coming back, you know, Mm -hmm. she gave me a fistful of food of some sort. And that's, you know, sort of where the trail of crumbs, the title comes from. And also that fairy tale of, and fairy tales are also dark and scary, finding our way home through food. So that was one of the stories I was always told as a child. But I also remember having a brother, for example, who Mm -hmm. was older, maybe, or younger, but taller. I remember the warm spot in the house where the house was sort of built up on stilts. There was no furniture, but there was a warm spot. And because I was the smallest, I had to, you know, wait my turn to sit on that in the wintertime. And when I went back to Korea the first time in 96, we went to that Korean village. And sure enough, the houses Mm -hmm. were built high and warmed from underneath. So I do, you know, that clarify these memories that I had. I remember like women carrying fruit and I remember the smells still actually, um, Mm -hmm. but not, not much else. In order to get adopted or whatever, they had to take me into the station for abandonment papers. And at that same time, uh, an American woman had brought in a, an infant, a newborn, and she was also trying to get abandonment papers and documents for this newborn. And apparently, I mean, you think about fate or whatever you want to believe in, this woman overheard my story and decided to get abandonment papers for me as well. And then I think I was at the start of the sea orphanage and then this this infant was with the Catholic Relief Services. All that's a little murky, but it ends up that infant ended up being adopted first by my American parents. And then they would come every day for a week to visit and I would be there jumping on their laps. And after a week, they decided to take me too. So um, we, you know, we converged in that way. And if I can ask, as you think about yourself as a character, is that something that you felt about yourself or how you saw yourself growing up that in a sense you were a character in a story all along or is that something that came out when you wrote the book you know that's a really interesting question and um I think there's a little bit of both and there was mostly that came out more when I was trying to understand the the um the idea of memoir and how to write a memoir but uh yeah I always remember this is so strange now with everything with AI I, I used to have dreams when I was you know seven eight years old that I would wake up and everyone else was an android right and I was the only human but no one would believe me and then there's also this sense of when you are other when you look differently when you you know you your eyes or or your you know or even if it's based on the color of your skin or your size or your age, you're, you're constantly told to, to assimilate and to become less, 
to become less you, to become less vocal in order to become more. But you're told to become more, right? Be better, be smarter, be brighter, be an example. Don't be yourself, but be less of you, but be more. So, you know, I think because we, whether we understand that, not because of being adopted necessarily, but just because if we look, we don't look like other people. I mean, we look like a lot of people, obviously, but you know what I mean? So I think there's that notion of you are yourself, but you also try to become smaller and lesser. Um, so you do think of yourself in a way as, as a different character or a different person because you can't truly be who you are. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And if I can just ask a follow-up to that, when you said, you know, when you become a character, you become smaller, you become lesser. Did you ever think about becoming bigger and becoming more of you? I don't think so, no. Um, I think I was really trying to be true to, so I had a lot of journals, you know, because people ask, how do you remember everything? I do have a very good memory for food and anything that relates to food. And I can tell you, people from 10, 15 years ago, I know exactly what they're allergic to or what they won't eat or what they loved and myself. And I, I have journals of menus when I lived in France um, where I would just jot down or I would have menus. I have a whole collection of menus from everywhere. I would always take that and, and then I was writing, you know, the, the story that helped me remember a lot of the situation and where I was and who was at the table and what we were shopping for and what I was cooking. Um, so back to your question, Linda, I think the only way in which I could be more was maybe through my food and that I wasn't, you know, I couldn't, I can't sing, I can't dance, um, but I can, you know, I can make a mean jambalaya. I can make kimchi fried rice. I, you know, if I'm in Italy, I can make a great pasta. So and that, that's maybe the sense of where I was. And because I'm a feeder, I'm a food pusher, as some of my friends say. So maybe in that sense, there's that abundance and of being more, but through, through the food and not mm. necessarily through myself. Mm. But to, to that point, when I went to Korea in 2008 for the book tour, the Korean edition of Trail of Crumbs, uh, that was very an emotional journey because I was there thinking I'm there on book tour. But uh, it ended up I was for, I think, 10 days. I was on the cover of every, you know, newspaper. I was on, you know, the search pages. They had me on YTN. They had me on these cable networks and these television shows trying to find my birth family. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was all of that during the day. And then I'd go back to my hotel room at night and sort of try to digest everything. And um, it was during that time I received two emails. Here I am jet lagged. That's when I met Lee also mm-hmm. the first time in Korea because mm-hmm. he was doing a birth family search. And the first email I got was um, from this young Korean adoptee, a man, and he wrote, he said, my, um, my girlfriend, who's white, gave me a copy of your book. And he said, um, I just want to thank you for writing my story. And he mm-hmm. said, my whole life I've been told to be other. I've, my whole life I've been told I should be grateful. My whole life I've had this black hole. And he said, and you wrote about that. And he said, I just want to thank you for writing my story. And he said, mm-hmm. I'm crying as I'm writing this. 
And it made me also back up a little bit and realize that, A, unfortunately, there were so many others, you know, searching and uh, longing and trying to find home and who they were, whether they were lost or abandoned. Um, And it also made me realize that the story, in a way, no longer belonged to me. Mm. And this book was now his or you know, if it could help just one person, for me, that was worth it, mm. if that makes And then I, I received that. another letter from a, a wine uh, writer, sommelier, um, domestic adoption here. And he wrote me at the same time. And here I am trying to do this birth family search last minute. And this other letter, this email I got was um, something similar. He just said, you know, I've ruined another relationship as an adoptee with all that that entails. We spoke. We spoke again years later, a few summers ago, actually. And he said he had. He was uh, at, when he turned forty. He found his birth family, mm. and when he met his birth mother, she sh- it was. She showed up with a box of forty birthday cards, one for every year that she had missed. Oh my gosh! And I know. So when I, you know, these I get these emails, and and this is not oh. at all what we expected. Could you go back to your very first question about? publishing the book um and when you tell your story and hopefully you tell it in an authentic way and um even though I was a character I was still you know relating these these emotions and these things that had happened and I at book signings you know uh adoptees would come up to me adoptive parents actually as well Mm. so um even though I could have maybe been kinder to myself in the book I think that Mm. putting it out there um it just helped me realize that we're not so alone in the world and if this you know touches one person or one adoptive parent or an adoptee Mm -hmm. then it was worth it so Sine I wanted to ask you about your memory of going back or going home to your adoptive family for the first time, what memory stands out to you? Um, I'm not sure if I remember the exact first time, but very early on, I mean, I was about three and a half or so. And I just remember my, my grand, my adoptive grandfather was a German Lutheran (laughs) um, in New Orleans and uh, just a person who, fed everybody you know we'd come out of church and he would we'd have all people new people sitting with us at the table every Sunday Mm -hmm. um I just remember him being such a a nurturer such a food lover and he would sit back and watch everyone eat and enjoy the food and Mm -hmm. and um so very quickly I knew this is the place to be right like I gotta be with this guy I gotta be in this kitchen (laughs) and very soon I was you know, the official taste tester. And I, I, I ate everything. I tasted everything. I mean, he called me a chow hound. That was my his nickname for me. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll own it. But I also remember, and I, I did write about this in, in the book, is that very early on, I kept going back to the refrigerator. And I kept telling my grandmother that it smelled like Korea. And they didn't mm. know what that meant. And then Finally, she opens up the drawer and there's a rotting pineapple in there. And I just remember, she was like, oh, maybe this is what it was. Um, And just 
being young, so little and still wanting to try really spicy, all the Louisiana, you know, gumbo and jambalaya and crawfish bisque. And, and yet after school or my snack, you know, they'd have all these, they'd have, well, I could not stand to drink milk. I thought that was so disgusting. Um, but I would, you know, they'd have cookies and brownies mm-hmm. and, and I would just ask for a bowl of white rice with butter and soy sauce. Mm-hmm. That was my one grounding thing, but everything else like this, there's, I just remember there being so much, there a bounty of food and spices and, mm-hmm. you know, herbs and just this love of, you know, being around the kitchen and the table. Yeah. And, um, and so that really has stayed with me, obviously. Yeah. I love that, that you were a professional taster. <laughs> yes. I was his official taste tester and I loved that role. Oh, that's great. Uh, your grandfather, it's Poppy. It's a great role to have. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So in what ways did your grandfather, Poppy, influence your writing career? career? You know, I'm not sure that he influenced the writing career itself. I think because of just giving me that sense of um, gathering people together and feeding that actual act of, you know, nurturing and nourishing, you know, even this metaphorical hunger that I didn't, I wasn't aware of, but this hunger of wanting to belong and wanting to, you know, be at the table with everybody and be in the Mm -hmm. kitchen. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, obviously my, everything I do is related to food somehow. So in that, in that Mm -hmm. respect, he definitely influenced um, just, just the taste. I just remember flavors and uh, I've kept that with me over Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. I'd like to just really ask you about belonging too. And did you find that place amongst, let's just say, the Asian American community or other Asian communities in in all the different places that you've lived in? Yes and no. I think that, well, you know, here we are in the mid-70s, um, two Korean adoptees growing up in New Orleans. The only, I mean, we went to school with, white kids and black kids and there were no Asian kids in our in our school um, and the only real Asian community was uh, the Vietnamese com- fishing community that had been you know in in, in the area of, um, since the 60s and 70s so there was no effort or realism you know like from my adoptive family I mean I do remember there was a one Korean restaurant and it was run by um, a classical musician from the symphony mm. uh, locally. And I think maybe the restaurant was called Genghis Khan or something. But, <laughs> you know, so I, we didn't have that community to even, we didn't even, if, and if we had had that community, I'm not sure that my adoptive family would have known to even, you know, have us participate in that. Mm. But then, you know, fast forward, um, it wasn't really until much later, you know, even, well, when I was in my early 20s and living in France, I did seek out Korean restaurants and learning how to cook the food. Um, but I never was part of um, that sort of community because, mm-hmm. A, I didn't really speak the language. You know, it was always through food, really, that, that mm-hmm. brought me in. And then even here in Alaska, you know, I, I have worked a little bit with the, um, the Korean community here. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I think there are 6,000 Koreans actually in, in Anchorage. Wow. Um, but, you know, I was, I, some Korean women brought me kimchi a few times and then wanted me to go to their church. And when I told them I had my own church, they stopped bringing me kimchi. <laughs> so I just make it myself. <laughs> but, uh, but, to, but to your question, Linda, I think it was always more on a, a you know, one-to-one basis of meeting, you know, a, like people like Yan or Lee. Um, but always there was another connection and not just the fact that we were Asian-American. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Korean women, <laughs> there's a character that you describe in your memoir. Her name is Madame mm. Song. Mm-hmm. And you say that Madame Song um, was a university professor you met while living in France. And she said to you during a dinner party, you don't look full Korean. And you said, but I am. And that you protested <laughs> a little too suddenly. Uh, and you specifically call that interaction out. What, what was significant about that interaction? I think I had this fantasy that, you know, a Korean woman would look at me and, and just know instantly that I was part of her or, the, you know, the yeah. identity of this Korean identity. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember being in Hong Kong the first time, too, and... Um, and in China and looking to see like, do I look like them? And then going yeah. to Korea, do I, do I look like, you know, and I'd ask, you know, Olivia at the time, I was like, do I look like her? Do I look like, do I look mm-hmm. like Madame Song? You know, mm-hmm. and, and many times I've been told like my hair doesn't really look full Asian or, and I don't know if they're trying to other me or, or what it is, but even the first time I went to Korea in 96, I, I thought I would let, you know, I just had this fantasy, but I wanted to learn as much of the language as I could. And that's why I took lessons with the university professor. Yeah. But I just remember thinking very naively, you know, I'd get off the plane and immediately I would belong, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or they would welcome me home. Oh, you know, you're back. And yeah. obviously it's a fantasy. So, um, so in my mind at that time, studying the language and it just wouldn't come back to me, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I actually do have an ear for languages, even though I can't sing, like I said, but I love languages so much. And it's also, a, you know, an entryway and like food into a, other cultures. And um, so I thought, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll learn Korean because when I go back to my birth country, I want to be polite. I want, you know, at least. And uh, it. It just didn't come back, really. Mm. Like, I didn't pick it up. My ear wasn't, you know, and um, I would write it and practice and mm-hmm. practice. And um, it was it was sad for me, mm-hmm. you know, and then and then to be told I didn't really look like them. You know, I'm yeah. like, well, if I don't look like you, then who do I look like? Right. Like, yeah. Or if you don't accept me, you know, where do I where do I belong? How do you identify, if at all? How do you identify or what do you ident- identify with? Um, I identify as a feeder, probably, yeah. like mm-hmm. a, a nurturer. Um, mm-hmm. More, you know, before identifying, uh, I mean, every day, if I look at myself in the yeah. mirror, clearly I, I'm Asian and I identify as Asian American. Yeah. Um, but it's so interesting as you grow up and, you know, you don't have to be adopted or any to, to know mm-hmm. to both of you, 
you know, you understand these barbed questions of like, oh, your English is so good. Um, <laughs> or, you know, where are you from? And you mm-hmm. say, oh, I'm from New Orleans. No, no, mm-hmm. where are you really from? No, I'm yep. really from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what nationality are you? Oh, I'm American. Mm-hmm. No, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think going through life, as I'm sure many of your listeners have also heard those questions. Yeah. You want to stop in a way, like, why do you have to constantly put a, you know, an identity? Why do you have to, like, I'm mm. always apologizing or trying to define my identity. And I think that has just been the nature of the beast, right, of being who yeah. we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so when you ask me that question, you know, it, I, I do think of myself as a, as a writer. I think of myself as a cook. I think of myself yeah. as, as a reader. I think of myself right. as a you know, a mother, to, a maternal to many people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think of myself in those ways first, Yeah, perhaps. I definitely felt nurturer and um, feeder because I think every single interaction we've had in person, that's what you were doing. <laughs> you were feeding me and everyone around <laughs> us. So I, I am 100% gar- like 100% sure you are a feeder. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you both enjoy cooking or are you feeders or are you eaters? Like cooks need eaters. Both. That's what I always both, say. Both, I think. Too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely both. I do like uh-huh. to cook, but I think I'm one of those that I just need time and space. Like I actually mm-hmm. really love looking up cookbooks and recipes and trying out different things. Usually I need an excuse and I need a lot of people because I don't know how to cook for just one or two people. <laughs> right? I'm the same way. <laughs> so I need a reason. Like, give me Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's awesome because I could just like try all different kinds of things and know that most likely all of it is going to get consumed or at least taken home by my family. And, and to me, I think that, and Christmas, right? You know, all the holidays. <laughs> As a Korean or a Japanese American or, you know, and, and, and again, these questions of identifiers, like what, because I, I think it's interesting as a, as a cook, people look at me and I go on, you know, I do a cooking demo and they expect me to make yeah. japchae or kimchi fried rice, mm-hmm. which I do make a lot of kimchi fried rice, but if you caramelize that kimchi and butter, it's so good on in anything, right? <laughs> But, but then, you know, but then I'm making, you know, like a true Provencal, you know, dish or something I learned, you know, living in, you know, in Sweden or Greece or whatever. So it's hard, right? Like this is, people expect certain things of you. I I don't know if Mm -hmm. that's the same for you too, when you're cooking or, or do you identify, how does food, how do you identify with the food that you cook and share? I, I yes. mean, for me, when I cook, mm-hmm. it's usually according to what I like to eat, which is pretty mm-hmm. eclectic. Um, I get bored if I'm going to eat the same thing or same style of food every day. Um, that's why travel is really interesting because obviously, you know, like if I go to a place, you know, I want to try the food of that region, which I do. But after some point, I'm craving something else, whether it's Mexican or whether it's yeah. literally like right, a burger I was just or say something a good like taco. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I have been so vegetarian for almost 10 years and vegan for the last several years. And that has been really fascinating from a um, food and identity standpoint, because 
for my family, they don't understand. <laughs> like, how can you be Korean and be vegan? But there is a way. Right? Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's the bridging between the veganism with uh, Korean food that has been really fascinating as part of my own journey. When mm-hmm. I first met Sune, I did not know how to cook. I never remembered what I ate. I just, it was like, that was just like a whole new language for me. But I have experimented because I had to bridge the two, uh, Korean, mm. being Korean and or having Korean food and then also the veganism part. So that has been a really great um, skill for me to develop over time. Yeah. And it's interesting because when you identify yourself as vegan, it almost transcends any of the ethnic or racial identifiers, um, you know, mm. countries of origin. Exactly. And, um, you know, it, it just reminds mm. me. So, so Jan shared with me a, a article, um, or an mm. essay that you had written, uh, for Leet Culinaria. And Culinaria, I, yep. yeah, and I have to say first, I, um, really enjoyed writing it. I felt quite mm-hmm. inadequate as a writer. I love writing. And so when I read your, your prose on there, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so, you know, beautifully written and oh, um, I wish I could be as good of a writer as, as you are, but what was, what was most striking is how you, there was actually several striking pieces mm-hmm. in there, but for me, what was really striking is how you spoke about um, the expectations that people had of you because of what you look mm-hmm. like, right? They expect that your specialty is going to be Korean food, um, mm-hmm. but not really thinking that your specialty could actually be French because you spent 10 years mm-hmm. in Provence. Yeah. And yet a white chef could hang up a shingle saying, I'm a ramen specialist, or I'm a, you know, pho specialist. And, you know, all they did is maybe they spent like several months in Vietnam or Japan. And now I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, I could cook this and I'm going to be a specialist. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting how, especially white men are allowed to do that. White, white, white Mm -hmm. chefs are allowed to do that. Yet we you know, as a person of color are not allowed to specialize mm-hmm. in other cuisines because of what we look like. And I, I, I right, and what's expected. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, you don't, people don't want to be uncomfortable. <laughs> they, they, they like to know. Okay. And I think I had, I had written about that as I was told in so many ways, stay in your lane. No. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're going to make, you're going to make a uh, tacos. No, 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 no. And you need to add some kimchi to that, you know, yeah. or how could you possibly know how to make, you know, stromati, you know, Italian, mm-hmm. it's like, just because of the way that I look. Most yeah. definitely. And if I can ask you another question in relation to that essay, what, what was also interesting is that you wrote about when you were hearing the first broadcast of violence towards Asian elders, you wrote that you turned to to cooking, that the process of cooking became a way for you to cope. And could you share what you meant by that? For example, you know, what was it about cooking that helped you to cope? You know, when I, um, David Leet, who runs this uh, award-winning website, Leet's Culinaria, asked me to write this personal essay. And I thought there are so many other people more qualified to write about this, you know, than, than I am. And, you know, and I I like that he pushed me out of my comfort zone. 
Um, and every day, you know, especially during the pandemic, first of all, it's just this global, you, just the weight of it. You realize it's not just here in Alaska or in Louisiana or California. The entire world, you know, is is taking this on. And then, of course, the uptick in violence against Asian Americans. And I'd see these horrible videos of, you know, 70-year-old Asian woman being knocked around or, you know, beaten up. And I just, I think for so long, I just, I didn't even know what to say, you know, that rage and that sort of, because it brings back for me and, you know, I'm sure for many of the listeners, like, you know, kids are cruel and you grow up already, you're different, whether you're fat or tall or considered, you know, too dark or too light or whatever it is, you know, you, you have those sort of things inside of you that you've grown up hearing and um, being made fun of or being, you know, things that are can also be quite violent um, verbally. And so to see that, I think also we couldn't go out in the world and travel or be anywhere but where we were, right at home. And so for me, it was the first time where food wasn't necessarily, cooking wasn't necessarily as joyful as I always, I want it to be celebratory and joyful because we have to eat every day. So why not make it something nourishing and good for us? But in this respect, I remember, I also was, you know, I suffer from anxiety and, and, and adding that onto it and seeing this in the news every single day and um, the hatred that, you know, that just was becoming more and more out in the open, really. Um, it was the only thing I knew how to really do is sort of go back to the kitchen and start from scratch, you know, pun intended, and just every day wake up and know, okay, I'm going to feed my husband and my stepson and feed my neighbors and one step at a time, you know. And, and, the, and those would also be occasions to gently speak about what was going on in the world without, um, you know, there are a lot of, you know, there are some people who don't think the way that obviously, you know, people in my circle who um, they have their own opinions and what they think is, I wrote that essay and I had some people call me up and say, wow, you know, I'm white. I, I really, I'm sorry that you felt that way, or I'm sorry that you feel this way. Um, they didn't know. And so going back to your question, Linda, about food was I could, it's the only thing I could find that could bridge this sort of gap between everybody's beliefs and um, desires and anxieties. And um, I just went back to what, what I knew and that was making the best food from whatever I had and feeding and nurturing that person, whoever it might be. And, um, and then I'd go in the bathtub and cry by myself, you know, because yeah. I didn't want to push my own anxiety and fears yeah. onto, right. onto everyone else. So food was my way of hearing, you know, a solace. It's comfort. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sine, you also mentioned that you were experimenting a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic. And then your family was, was relieved that you stopped experimenting and just... <laughs> Tell us a little well, bit more about that. <laughs> well, I'm really, uh, you know, like I, my 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 lovely stepson Liam, who's almost 18, 
he's so funny because he's a really good taster, right? Like he'll try everything, but he knows when I'm, cause I'm always pulling back on the sugar, right? Like my desserts are always going to be a little less sweet. Um, you know, and so finally, by at one point I, I just gave up and we had some frozen onion rings or something in the freezer and I pulled them out with a bunch of ketchup and they're like, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, or I'd roll something in a bunch of sugar. and I just gave up at that point. You right? gave up. I'm trying to make, but you know, he was doing, um, school remotely so he would have like homemade breakfast homemade lunch and then dinner mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. and it was always very clean food and nutritious but you know like yeah. come on can I have some butter can I have some yeah. sugar yeah um, so yeah. I did give up in that regard at some point <laughs> just like all right I'll, I fried like I don't even know 50 pieces of chicken one day for the, all the neighbors <laughs> Linda, just uh, as an FYI, Sune is like an amazing chef. I mean, she we ha- have a, had a friend who said um, Sune could like throw together like anything, even the bottom of a shoe, and <laughs> she'll make it delicious. <laughs> That's my I do love that kind of cooking though. I I want to do a show where I just go to someone's refrigerator <laughs> and take out whatever they have and try to just make something. I'm always so envious of people who have that ability to just mm-hmm. open up a refrigerator and say, let's yeah. throw something together because yeah. I'm not good at exactly. that. <laughs> I'm with you try, there. Try, just try. You know, <laughs> I right. think because living in, um, for example, living in France, you know, you go you go to the market almost yeah. every day. You buy fresh and you cook whatever, whatever you have then. You don't have a lot of things stored up. Um, mm-hmm. So... I, I like that kind of cooking, and I think also mm-hmm. from my my grandfather, my adoptive grandfather, who was not a fancy chef. Um, you know, we joke even to this day. Um, he's no longer here with us, but my uncle would call me up over mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, or he said, "Oh, Kim Sune, I found I found ten melatons for a dollar. Poppy would be so proud of me." But the day before, they were like a dollar a piece, so he would wait. <laughs> And and so we kind of learned this thriftiness, you know, from and, and a lot of country peasant cooking is about thriftiness. You know, some of the great cuisines, mm. whether it's like the Cucina Pavera of Italy and, and Provencal cooking and even Korean cooking, you know, you're always you're preserving, you know, whether it's right. through salt or, um, yeah. you know, and you're just mm-hmm. cooking what you have on hand. Mm-hmm. So I do mm-hmm. love that sort of on the fly. I'll come see what's in your refrigerator, Linda. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I, I, I think right now, if you looked at my fridge, you'd be pretty horrified right now. I would say that I'm uh, very much lacking in, in probably some good ingredients. <laughs> so speaking of ingredients, like what are your top three or four ingredients that you always have or that you always use? I would say for me, like, blueberries and yogurt quick and easy breakfast food type things that right now I actually have uh, greens like lettuce and, and mm-hmm. things like that. I, I think I'm Kim Sune needs that. a show where you actually, <laughs> via Zoom, you look at people's refrigerators I and then you tell them great. what to do. Mm-hmm. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> we need a good name for that. <laughs> Hopefully, as we see more voices like yours and others continue to be out there say maybe it just normalizes more and more Mm -hmm. that we belong right that we are very much who we are and that um it's not to be 
placed into these buckets or into these, you know, kind of lanes. And that, you know, as I think about, you know, bringing this kind of conversation back to leadership too, right? I mean, I think that that's been some of the struggle is that for many who look like us, who present Asian, you know, the the stereotype is that we're, we're, you know, stay in your lane and be the good worker, be, be the good individual contributor. You know, you're not really supposed to, you're not really leadership material. And I think, you know, the, right. the, the voices and the stories that you and others are telling is so much a part of, I think, helping to educate, to broaden, um, and I think to really uh, enable people to see us in all these different kind of spaces and places that maybe they would never have thought about. And so, you know, I just want to say thanks to you and thank you for your time and thanks to you for what you're doing thank to help you ensure for, our stories are being told. You, I think in the end, you know, when we do try to go, when you think back about being lesser or smaller, um, I think what, what, I hear from what I've learned through LEAP as well is that it's not about that. It's about what what can you bring to the table and to be your authentic self. And if you present with who you are and your authentic self and your 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 loves and your desires and from where you've traveled and the people you've met, you know, if you have an openness and willingness to share that, I think more people will understand, oh, they're they're not they don't all look alike and they don't all sound alike and they don't all eat the same food and um, you know, and that, that's incumbent on, on us as well to yeah. to show that. And I, and I I really appreciate being part of this podcast and, and what you all do at LEAP. So thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining Jan and I for this season three episode of the LEAP podcast. Stay connected with LEAP by joining LEAP's mailing list at leap.org and follow us on LEAP's social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please donate to Leap. Thank you all for tuning in today. We look forward to being with you next time.